Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to a bonus episode of On the Tape. This week, I'm in Miami at the Context 365 conference, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, about all the volatility happening in crypto right now and a lot of other things. Hope you enjoy it. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hopefully everybody's enjoying the conference. I was hoping we get more people, but I guess people are in meetings. I totally get it. But I want to thank everybody that's here for making the effort to get down to Florida. A uh, couple of years ago, they asked me to co-host Power Lunch, and one of the guests was going to be Michael Saylor, which I found fascinating. So I obviously did my homework. I did the interview with Morgan Brennan, and I'd say five or ten minutes after the interview ended, uh, Mr. Saylor reached out to me and said, I thought it was well done and really appreciated it. And you know, we started a bit of a friendship. So when I reached out to Michael a few months ago and asked him to come down here, he immediately said yes. Uh, I don't think he needs an introduction. I'm sure you all know who he is. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the CEO of MicroStrategies, Michael Saylor. Well, Michael, you heard my introduction. I mean, we did that interview on CNBC, and it was fascinating. And that was a couple years ago. but. You know, you had your sort of come to, for lack of a better phrase, Jesus moment in terms of crypto, probably March, April, I guess, of 2020. Can you sort of speak to that? And what, what forced you into that? What was the catalyst to get you there? You know, we're running a, <clears throat> a, a conservatively managed company with a, a large cash flows. And we accumulated more than half a billion dollars of cash over the previous few years. You know, the... The cash used to generate, with conventional treasury strategies, about 550 basis points. I remember when you could basically get more than 500 basis points for overnight money, no credit risk. And I say, you're holding $500 million, and you're thinking, maybe I get $25 million a year. The rest of the business was generating $30, $40 million a year in cash flow. It felt like a balanced asset. Uh, the come to Jesus moment was March, April, the second quarter of 2020. Interest rates have been sliding for a decade. You know, hope springs eternal. Yeah. And I pretty much lost hope. They got pegged to zero. You know, Jerome Powell said, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates to the year 2024. I said, my $500 million looks like dead money. It's going to generate zero. Meanwhile, uh, COVID hit. We all went virtual. The company started generating much more cash. 75, we thought 75, 80, 90 million dollars a year in cash flow on the operating side. But then we, uh, we saw on the balance sheet side, the cash was going to generate zero. And then we watched as there was a K-shaped recovery and assets all appreciated in price 25%. And I started thinking over the next four to eight years, the monetary expansion rate is going to be double what it had been in the past 10 years. It's going to be going from 10% to 
this treasury balance is going to lose 20% of its purchasing power a year. The nominal yield is going to be zero. The real yield is going to be minus 15, minus 20%. My investors valued the company at one times revenue plus the cash. Their view was cash is trash, give it all back to us. And so we got to this point where I realized we either needed to give all the cash back to the shareholders and decapitalize the company, or we needed to invest it in something which was going to go up in value more than the rate of the money expansion. And that set us on this search for what eventually became Bitcoin. Well, it's interesting. You talk about balance sheet, corporate balance sheets, and how most companies look at it wrong. If you have cash on your balance sheet, that's actually a liability. Can you speak to that? Because more and more, I think people are coming to that realization, but it took a long time for people to get there. I think there's, <clears throat> there's two types of inflation you can focus on. One is consumer inflation as measured by CPI, and the other is asset inflation as measured by, and I think the best surrogate I can find is the S&P index. So asset inflation is the cost of capital. It's the cost to stay wealthy. If you want to be rich or stay rich or maintain shareholder value, you've got to hit that hurdle rate. That's traditionally been 10% a year up until 2020, and then it doubled. You know, so, and it almost went to 25%. So the monetary inflation rate is the cost of capital, is the S&P index. If you're, a, if you're a private individual and you own everything you need, your car, your house, and you're looking toward retirement, you could think, well, I just need to keep up with the CPI. I don't need to buy anything. I don't need to buy stocks. I don't need to buy a house in the Hamptons. So if, if I can keep up with CPI, I'm good. But if you're a young individual, you're in your 20s, you want to buy a house, you want to send your kids to expensive school, you want luxury assets, you want a stock portfolio, you want Social Security from the private sector, if the price of an S&P stock is going up at 10% a year and your salary is going up at 3% a year, you got a negative real yield of minus 7. So... What I, what I realize is I'm a public company CEO. If I want to hold shareholder value and I'm holding $500 million in cash, I need to beat the S&P index. How do you do that? Well, you could buy the S&P, but the problem is not very popular with your shareholders. Mm -hmm. And there's a technicality, which is the S&P index is a security. And you can't hold more than 40% of your assets as securities if you're an SEC operating company. So... So uh, I can't really buy a package of securities. I got to either lever up the company, give all the capital back to the shareholders, buy my own stock back, or I have to buy property, not a security, that will actually hold its value that's scarce and desirable. And so, you know, the, the general idea, the theme is <clears throat> you're sitting on conventional treasury strategy, which yields 1% interest. And the monetary inflation rate, the cost of capital is 20%. You're minus 19% real yield. You're burning 19% of your treasury a year. It used to be sovereign debt yielded 5%, 4%, 6%, and you expected 7 8 9% inflation. You're a minus real yield, minus 3. You can do that for 30 years. And if it's going to take 30 years to burn your treasury... You can justify having a conventional strategy because you're, ready, you're better off to have the insurance policy for 30 years just in case to protect the operating business. 
But when the cost of capital goes to 25% and the nominal yield is zero and your, and your negative real yield is minus 25%, now you're burning through your treasury in three to four years. Now, that's not the worst case. The worst case is I'm sitting in Argentina or Turkey or Lebanon and, or, or Venezuela and the inflation rate goes to 100% or 200% or 1,000% and you're going to burn through all your cash in 12 months. And so you can see that risk-free rate varies depending on the macroeconomic circumstances. And if you're going to run a business responsibly to preserve shareholder value, you've got to have an opinion about, um, about what is the real yield on your treasury strategy and how important is it to have capital. And uh, I, if I had given all the capital back and just dividended it all back to the shareholders, then we're a low-growth company mm -hmm. generating cash that's losing 15% of its purchasing power a year competing against Microsoft. And at that point, well, your shareholders start to wonder whether you'll be around, so the stock trades down, and then the employees start to wonder, and then the customers start to wonder. You get yourself in a death spiral, and you can spin into oblivion. So I didn't want to decapitalize the company financially if I'm fighting a war for human capital and customer retention. So that's why we, you know, I concluded in essence, the traditional treasury strategy is bankrupt, you know, in a, in a highly inflationary environment. And you've got to do something different on your balance sheet. Well, you came to that realization. It, pro it obviously took you a period of time to get up the curve. And you mentioned property. I'm going to come back to that. But it's not just you. You don't work in a vacuum. You had to get your board of directors to sign off on this as well. Sign off on putting Bitcoin on your balance <coughs> sheet. Now, if memory serves, you sent them all home over the weekend with a homework assignment. And they all came back to you with the thumbs up. But can you speak to that? Because I think that's yeah. really fascinating. Look, the, the theoretical thing you want to do is you want to you want to replace your balance sheet, which has got crumbling credit. I've got credit generating one percent yield with a cost of capital of twenty percent. I'm crumbling. I want to replace my balance sheet with some property, a non-currency derivative. So I either buy a building, or I buy land, or I buy a portfolio of art, or I buy gold or I buy some crypto gold, right? And, and after sifting through every possible property, I, I settled upon the idea of crypto gold, and then I sifted through 6,500 cryptos, <clears throat> and I figured <clears throat> Bitcoin is the closest thing to digital gold on the dominant network. It's the least risky of the crypto assets, and, and it's the one that is acknowledged as a property. So now, if I've come to that conclusion, I've got my general counsel, my CFO, I've got my outside auditors, I've got my outside counsel law firm, and I've got my board of directors. And so this becomes an education exercise. <clears throat> I gave them, I gave them uh, about five hours worth of videos. What is Bitcoin? How do you think about the macroeconomics? So I said, watch all these. Then I gave them a bunch of materials, you know, started pointing them toward articles, you know, uh, on Bitcoin, the bullish case for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin standard. And I said, you know, guys, I want you to watch all these videos, peruse these things, and then I'm going to talk to you. So first I give them the homework. 
You know, you can be amazed what you can learn on YouTube, guy. <laughs> you can learn anything on YouTube, right? You got to pick the right, the right YouTube, not the wrong YouTube. But if you pick the right things, I gave them that. Then I talked to them after that and answered all their questions. Then we all got together as a group and we talked with each other. Then we broke up into working groups. The general counsel led a review on the regulatory, statutory issues. You know, we study every single publicly traded company that's got any crypto on the balance sheet. What have they done? We study all the guidelines. The CFO leads the financial review with the accountants and the finance department. You know, I, I, I lead some strategy discussions. We have a discussion on shareholder relations. How are we going to actually bring our shareholders along? <clears throat> and, um, you know, we work through the accounting. We work through the statutory disclosure issues. And we settle upon a very conservative strategy. We basically said we're going to buy back $250 million worth of our stock. And we're going to invest $250 million in an asset as an inflation hedge. We put that out on the wire. And you know, we announced that to all of our shareholders. We waited for five days. Crickets. The stock didn't trade. Everybody kind of like just did a nah hum and ignored it completely. Five days later, we uh, accelerated the process. Because we, we can't just wait forever. I mean clock is ticking. <clears throat> so we announced that we had rifled through, we'd studied every alternative, we made a decision. The decision was to invest $250 million in Bitcoin. We did it around 11,000 some change a coin, between 11 and 11,500 a coin. So early on by today's standards. And then we said, uh, we're going to announce a Dutch auction. We're going to buy back $250 million worth of our shares at a premium. I think the stock was trading 120, and we announced we tender up to 140. And we give everybody 20 days to think about it. <clears throat> because you got 20 days to decide, do you want to be on, on MicroStrategy's Bitcoin journey? Do you want to get off? If you want to get off, we buy you out at a profit. Mm -hmm. If you want to stay on, you stay with us. You know, when, when you see these press releases at 9 a.m. and you got to make a decision by 9.30 a.m., right, that's kind of anxiety-inducing. So we thought the kindest, gentlest thing we can do is give everybody 20 trading days. Stock traded up. First, it traded into the 130s, and it traded above. The, people thought, well, this is a put option. Traded above 140. People had their 20 days to get in or get out. The shareholder base rotated. At the end of the period, we had about you know, $60 million tendered. We had an extra $175 million in cash. We bought Bitcoin with it. All of a sudden, we had a $425 million position at about, you know, we bought that Bitcoin 10,500, so a low basis. And then we waited, you know, and the, the, our stock traded up, Bitcoin traded up, the market started to realize, register, oh, here's a publicly traded company that could use this as a strategy. You know, the rest is kind of history. Well, it's interesting you said, you said a lot of interesting things, but anxiety-inducing. And I remember one of the first times we spoke, you talked about our society is based on, is predicated on doing exactly that. And think about the last two days, for example, in terms of the market, I'm sure... There are people looking at their phones, seeing what the market's doing. It's all anxiety-inducing, yet you gave people 20 days. How were you able to 
get yourself away from that and have the clarity that's required to have a vision of not five minutes, but five years, 50 years? Well, you know, um, I became a big believer in big tech and the mobile wave around 2010, and I made large investments in Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google between 2010 and 2012. And during that time period, there were a lot of haters of Amazon. They hated it. A lot of people would tell you, if Apple stock doubles, you should sell half of it and diversify into the other computer companies. When Amazon goes up, you should sell half of it and diversify in the other retail companies. You know, what are these things? I don't get it. And, uh, you know, my view then was it doesn't make sense to sell the big tech dominant monopoly because it's going to eat everything, right? One company, Amazon won. Walmart kept up. Every other retailer, 15,000 retailers lost. With Apple, one company won the mobile wave. They got 150% of the profit in mobile phones. Every other company lost money to compete with them. And uh, so my experience as a private investor is you got to figure out what's the dominant technology that's going to win in, in the eyes of a billion people. They have an overwhelming lever. Once you figure that out, if 98% if of the people disagree with you, it's probably a good investment. Like, I could have lined up everybody on Wall Street in 2010. You can go back and you probably had a parade of people talking heads on television telling you why Amazon didn't make money, they're never going to make money, blah, blah, blah. And yet, and here we are today. So that was, that was my experience, a happy experience. I knew find the dominant technology and just and, and put the chip down and wait a decade. I had my father's experience. My father worked for his entire life and retired as a chief master sergeant in the Air Force. And then his retirement savings, he can't invest in a savings account. They yield zero. So he goes and he buys some stocks and he bought like British Petroleum stock. And, you know, so my dad's owning British Petroleum. They have an oil well blow up. And then the president of the United States decides to enter into the fray, the stock gets destroyed, you know, and, and it's like, why does um, a, a non-commissioned officer have to become a stock analyst and bet their life savings on guessing which stock will get destroyed or not get destroyed based on an act of God so he can live happily ever after in his retirement? And it struck me as, that's not right, right? The political system destroyed the savings account. They, you know, it used to be you could buy a bond yielding 6% interest, and, and the risk was the United States government would default on it. And we got to the point where, you know, a guy driving a taxi cab has to guess whether or not Facebook will beat Apple, you know, and you're taking risk. And so my view was there's something wrong. People shouldn't have to be hedge funds, and they shouldn't have to guess whether a stock will beat their quarterly earnings in order to not lose all their money. There's something busted there. And the appeal of Bitcoin is, it's just a savings account in cyberspace run by software. It's like Bitcoin is like a savings account run by software and it's incorruptible. The software doesn't get to change the rules. You're not guessing whether they'll hit their quarterly earnings. You're just putting your money in that bank in cyberspace and you're waiting for a decade. And over the course of a decade, after you smooth out all the volatility, 
it's outperforming the S&P. There's no CEO to give himself stock options. There's no board to issue credit or debt and dilute you. You're not get, you don't have to worry about your stock triples and the company sells more stock. All you're doing is you're converting what is a weaker form of property into a stronger form of property and waiting for a long period of time. You mentioned talking heads. I mean, unfortunately, I find myself one of those talking heads. With that said, we say things on the network, a lot of the networks, when we talk about Bitcoin, we call it cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is a currency, and I'm sure that makes you wince in pain because you have a much different view. You view this as property, and that's not nuance. That's an actual distinction. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that if you're going to be in the entire crypto economy, you have to understand the legal and the technical definition of property versus security versus currency. Uh, a, a currency is, is a legal tender, and you can, you can legally transfer it a thousand times a year without incurring a tax obligation. I can take a, a million dollars on you know, six months ago, hold it for six months, give it to you, and there's no accounting event, and there's no tax event. Property, I take a million dollars of property, if it trades, you know, and I give you a million dollars of that property, but the basis has changed, and of course it's gonna change, there's a capital gain or a capital loss that has to be accounted for. And, uh, and so, if something's property, you're not going to want to trade it. You're going to want to hold property for a decade. Maybe the ideal holding period for property is forever. Right? You're a wealthy family in New York. Your grandfather bought a city block in New York in 1930. You're holding it in the year 2022. You're going to give it to your grandkids, and property is meant to be levered up. I'm going to mortgage it. I'm going to live off of the borrowings, or I'm going to develop it or I'm gonna sell the air rights over it, I'm gonna lean it, right? Or, or I'm going to rent it, but I'm going to hold it. That's the way a rational business person handles property. Currency is something that I'm gonna move with high velocity. It's a working capital. So uh, cryptocurrency is a stable coin. Every stable coin is in essence a crypto dollar. And, uh, and the world wants to move crypto dollars around because they can move them at high velocity and they solve a problem. I can trade, I can settle every three hours and I can trade 24, 7, 365. And so there's a place for high velocity currency. But property solves a different problem. I'm sitting in Argentina and I want to trade my weak property. Weak property is a business that sells stuff in pesos. And I want to convert it, and it's limited to Argentina. I sell my building. I convert it to Bitcoin. My Bitcoin is valuable and desirable to anybody with money in London, Paris, Beijing, or Moscow. My building in, in Argentina is valuable only to someone in Argentina. I can rent the building for pesos. I can rent the Bitcoin for euros or dollars. Right? So, so weak property goes to strong mm -hmm. property. Weak currency, the peso, losing 80% of its value in a year, goes to the dollar, losing 15% of its value in a year. Right? And when you think that way, you realize there's a massive demand for strong property everywhere in the world, but there's even a bigger demand for strong currency. So the cryptocurrency is the stable coin. It's the tether. It's the circle. It's whatever 
the United States endorses, if, if a bank like Silvergate issues a stable coin, that's going to be cryptocurrency. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, currencies that are attractive. We live in a, on a planet where it's seemingly every central bank is trying to devalue their currency against the next guys and gals to make their goods more attractive. And you mentioned Jerome Powell, who just seemingly just a few years ago, we're not thinking about thinking about raising rates to post Thanksgiving do a complete 180 in terms of everything we're talking about now. Some of the volatility we're seeing is no doubt in the back of that. So what is your current macroeconomic outlook? What's going on to you? Um, I, first of all, I'd say you can't be an investor without understanding and having a macroeconomic outlook and a microeconomic outlook. If you're going to own stocks and you own international stocks that actually sell their products in South America, you have a partial currency derivative and you have to have an opinion on the real, the bolivar, and the peso in order to own the stock. If you're going to own uh, an asset, you got to understand, is it a currency derivative, pure and simple, like a bond, the, uh, an Argentine bond, a US bond? Is it a 100% currency derivative? Or is it a partial currency derivative, like a value stock? Or is it uh, a property, like owning a Leonardo da Vinci painting that's valued just for it, the essence of its ownership? So my macroeconomic view is there's 130 currencies that are floating right now one, in one shape or form. The strongest currency is the dollar. It's losing, it's, it's losing purchasing power at maybe double the rate it was losing purchasing power before 2020. So if it was losing 7 to 10% of its purchasing power a year, it's now losing 15 to 20% of its purchasing power a year. We're going to stay in an environment for the next four to eight years where we're going to run higher deficits. We're going to have, uh, we're going to have a lower interest rates, looser monetary policy than we had before 2020. There's just a, a question of, are you a 15%er or a 20%er or a 12%er? But I don't, I don't think anybody reasonably can expect that we're going to go back to a tighter money policy than we had in 2019 or 2018. So, so my forecast there is, is all the strong currencies of the world, which are the dollar, the, the euro, and then all the currencies pegged to the dollar, the DRAM, et cetera, um, all of those currencies lose 15% of their purchasing power a year for quite a while. The second tier currencies are losing double that. They're losing 30% of their purchasing power a year, and they're just weakening against the dollar, and you can see it. And then the third tier currencies are losing anywhere 50% to 100%. Well, they're running 50 to 100% inflation. You can see that in like in Argentina right now. And, and the indicia of the weakest currencies <coughs> is, um, is either nominal inflation is diverging from the black market inflation. Like uh, the official exchange rate of the peso is like 100 uh, peso to the dollar, but the blue market rate hit 210 pesos to the dollar the other day. And uh, 36 months ago, it was 15 pesos to the dollar. And 15 years ago, it was two pesos to the dollar. And I remember when it was one peso to the dollar. So, so there are, the weakest cur currencies are gonna have capital controls. We see the Chinese currency, the CNY is pegged to the dollar, but the only way they peg it to the dollar is with capital controls. 
and uh, Argentina has somewhat capital controls. That's why, that's why you got to pay 200 pesos to get a dollar, but officially the government only pays you 100 pesos. We're going to take a quick break. More with Michael Saylor right after this. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. I'm not looking to play like where's Bitcoin going price-wise, but I want to mention something because it's, I think it's interesting. It's, it's, I don't think it's coincidental that the recent decline in Bitcoin has come on the heels of a Fed that's seemingly trying to get themselves back from being, in my words, reckless to having some semblance of order. With that said, to what you're saying, if they were to have to backtrack for whatever reason, market collapse, or they, they just can't continue raising rates and reducing their balance sheet, how bullish would that acknowledgement that they have effectively failed be for, for Bitcoin? <clears throat> well, you know, I'm, I'm not a trader, and so my, my short time horizon is four years. During five, five years, well, I'll take that kind of risk. Uh, and my, my normal time horizon is a decade for a forecast, and the ideal time horizon is, is forever. It's property. Do I want to own, do I want to own Manhattan? Do I want to own London? Do I want to own gold? Or do I want to own Bitcoin for the next 30 years, right? Uh, having said all that, right, the way Bitcoin trades oftentimes is it trades like with the derivative, the acceleration or the jerk or something of the money supply. <laughs> so the fast money traders control it in the near term. And, uh, and they will tend to kind of do the opposite of the long term, which I find interesting. When, uh, when the Fed said there was no inflation, right, people come on television and say, there's no inflation, maybe, maybe uh, you don't need Bitcoin because Bitcoin's an inflation hedge. And then uh, the fast money trades against it for a bit. Mm -hmm. And then another week or two weeks go by. And then, uh, and then once you get outside the fast money, the momentum, the more fundamental players come in and they start buying it up and it, and it accelerates. And I think um, when the Fed says, well, I guess there is inflation, we've got big inflation, but we recognize it's a problem. The fast money says, oh, well, they recognize it's a problem. So it trades against Bitcoin. Like, well, there's, the Fed's going to treat the problem. Mm -hmm. And you're in that dynamic. And, to, and then I think eventually over time, the, the longer term uh, investors come in and they start to drive it the other direction. So you got to decide whether you're fast money. If you're fast money, you're trading on the volatility. And those guys, I, I guess they know what they're doing. They can figure it out. But I can't figure it out from hour to hour, day to day. I, I, my view is if everybody in the world today universally agrees we have an inflation problem, 
question you got to ask yourself is if the Fed raises short-term rates to 1% or 2% and they've agreed there's a 7% CPI, and if you can establish a 15 to 20% monetary inflation rate, what's the likelihood that inflation's going away? Not great, to be honest with you. And I'm on a show called Fast Money, and I can't figure it out. So current regulatory outlook for crypto, Bitcoin, all those <coughs> things, the industry, and the risks associated with that, and political considerations, because now that's coming into play. Yeah, if you look at the... Um Look at the entire crypto ecosystem. You've got, you've got digital property, digital currency, and digital securities, and digital platforms. And they all have a different regulatory overhang and regulatory risk. But the least risky of these things is digital property. Bitcoin's the dominant digital property. It's, it's a common property, it's not a security, it's acknowledged as not a security. That makes it ethical for a public official to endorse it without a conflict of interest. If you're the mayor of Miami, or you're the governor of New York, or you're a senator or congressman, or the head of a country, and you stood up and said, I think um, everybody should have a chicken in every pot, a farm, a house, some land, and some Bitcoin, you just said the same thing. You said, I'm endorsing food is property, land is property, house is property, a synthetic digital asset is property, live happily ever after. You know, it's a better store of value than the US dollar, than the peso, than the boulevard. So I think Bitcoin has got some clarity there. If in the use case is property, buy it as property. If you sell it or transfer it, you owe a capital gains tax a loss, a gain, or whatever. <clears throat> That's been decided. Are there other digital properties? Well, I mean, the Bitcoin forks are 1% of Bitcoin. <laughs> They've failed. There's a lot of question about, is there any other digital property? I, I can't, I would not endorse any other digital property other than Bitcoin, because everything else is murky. Now you go to digital currency. Well, you've got, you've got a lot of digital stable coins. There's 17 or 18 stable coins. The digital currency that's one is the dollar. If the world had its way, we would have one to $10 trillion worth of digital dollars circulating. Why aren't they? Well, they, you know, they need to be endorsed by the banking regulators. If, if JP Morgan issues a digital dollar, they could issue a trillion dollars worth of it. Like that. Because the use case for the digital dollar right now is offshore settlement of crypto trades and people that don't trust their own government and their own banks. If you're in Turkey or Lebanon or Argentina, a short story, I have a million dollars in Argentine bank, I'm worried about the peso, they're pegged one, to the, one peso to the dollar. On one night, the government sends a fax machine, a fax memo, and they convert everybody's dollars to pesos. The next day, they devalue the peso 10 to 1. The next day, they hand me back one-tenth of the money I had, and that's under a capital control. That's what happens in an in a environment where you don't trust the bank. So people that are concerned about that, they want to own digital currency. They want to swap their lira or their pound. Lebanese pounds or their Argentine pesos or their boulevards to tether or, or to a circle or whatever stable coin. But you're not going to see Amazon and IBM and Microsoft do 
tens of billions of dollars of cross-border remittances with a stable coin unless it's issued by an FDIC-insured institution. So corporate treasury usage and retail remittances require a government endorsement. And so I, I think with uh, digital currency, we're waiting for that government-endorsed digital currency. And when El Salvador endorsed, uh, endorsed this stuff, you saw three million people download a wallet within four weeks. Mm -hmm. And that's half the country. So I think that uh, there's a demand for that, but there's a question of who can issue a stable coin. Do you need a money, uh, a money transfer license, a state banking license, a federal banking license, a federal banking license in every country? <laughs> What's the KYC, et cetera? With regard to digital securities, most of the other cryptos are securities. And I think that's been made clear by a lot of regulators. If, uh, if there's a small group of people and they've issued a token, it looks like an investment contract, you're relying upon the work of others to make a profit. If it generates a yield, it looks like a security. We're waiting for more clarity on how do I issue a digital token that's a security and then what are the liabilities associated with that? I think that that's the biggest regulatory overhang. And then the, and, and the last piece is digital platforms. Like, what's the innovation of crypto? There's three big, well, there's four big innovations. One innovation is digital property and cyberspace. You could put $100 trillion on the Bitcoin network. Big innovation. I can, I can take $10 million, move it from Rio de Janeiro to Moscow to Beijing to London, and I could never do that with pure property in the history of the human race. That's an innovation. The second innovation is <clears throat> cryptocurrency. The world wants $10 trillion worth of US dollars. If they get it, 100 currencies will collapse, and we'll have a dozen strong currencies that'll exist. And nobody in Asia or nobody in Africa is going to use any currency other than the dollar unless they're forced, right? So that's the second innovation, and we're working to get through that adoption phase. The third innovation is I can issue uh, a token or a security really fast, maybe, and trade it with high velocity. We're waiting to get guidance on, well, how do I issue a compliant token? You know, how, how do I do that? And then the, is there a faster way than taking a company public? The taking a company a public way, I know very well. It takes six months to a year. It's, it's, a, it's a 10, 20 million dollar expense and takes a year and it, and it becomes a 50 person finance uh, account. It's a, it's a 10, 20 million dollar overhead every year forever, mm -hmm. right? That's the, that's the heavy way, the 20th century way. Is there a 21st century way? Well, we're waiting. The fourth innovation is digital platform, trading this stuff 24 seven, 365 and cross-collateralizing it. <clears throat> Does the world want that? Yeah, I mean, they want to trade on, they want to trade all sorts of derivatives, and they want, to, they want to do sports betting, they want to trade digital commodities, they want to trade digital tokens. Is there, a, you know, and, and what's the example of success? Well, the big offshore crypto exchanges, you know, big example of success, all the crypto tokens. But uh, what's the regulator view? Uh, they want to be national securities exchanges. <laughs> The SEC wants these things to be national securities exchanges and adopt the principles and the protocols of a national security exchange, <clears throat> which means 
you can't have 20 to 1 leverage. It means you've got to have surveillance agreements. It means you've got to be transparent. And so clearly, over the next 36 months, it's, it's a 36-month, it's a 40-month. I don't think it gets sorted out in 12 months. Mm -hmm. But it's over the next three to five years, this industry needs to go from entrepreneurial, fast, and loose to institutional, regulated, orderly, transparent, like, you know, private companies to public companies, unregulated to regulated, retail offshore to institutional onshore. And, um, you know, when you're looking at it as an investor, if, you know, if you're a public investor, a public company, a public official, your safe harbor, your safe place is Bitcoin as property. Not Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, but Bitcoin as a store of value. I'm going to buy it, hold it for a decade. That's a, that's a clear place. If you're, a, <clears throat> if you're a tech VC, a crypto venture capitalist, I, I mean, who's going to dominate stable coins? Who's going to dominate digital platforms? Who's going to dominate, the, you know, what's the cool, you know, DeFi swap exchange? You can play that, but you have to understand the competition, the regulation, the security issues, and it's a lot more complicated. And if you're a speculator, you're a speculator. Dogecoin versus Shibcoin, that's knock, speculation. Knock out. So the 60-40 model that was dominated the 20th century, I mean, what's the modern asset allocation <laughs> model, in your opinion, in 2022? <clears throat> I think... I think um, traditional balance sheets, if you look at the corporate treasury model, it's traditionally been all cash and cash equivalents. And I think that's uh, defective in the Western world because that's crumbling credit and you're losing 15% to 20% a year. But I think that the illustrative point would be if I took that that treasury strategy to Africa or South America, where you've got a negative real yield of minus 50%. And I don't think there'd be any debate. You can't capitalize a company in the international market uh, on credit. You have to. So all those international companies, I think their model is flipped from international currencies to the US currency. <laughs> If you're an Argentine rancher, you would rather be sitting on stablecoin U.S. dollars as your working capital. So I think you're going to see uh, everybody wants to trade up. You know, you see the headline in uh, in the Wall Street Journal: huge demand for dollars and Bitcoin in Turkey last week. So I think that you're going to see um, balance sheets in uh, in weak countries trade from a weak currency to a strong currency. I think that if you're holding a large treasury in the US, you can't hold working capital. This is, and you can see this for the past 20 years, Guy, major companies have all leveraged up. If you're leveraged up with debt, you've got negative working capital. The way that a CFO solves the problem is they basically dividend out or they buy back with all their cash and they convert it to their own stock or they're doing Activision acquisitions. Right. Massive acquisitions, massive buybacks, massive leverage, and anybody holding cash is just getting beat to death by negative real yields. And I think that if you're a, 
if you're a public institutional investor, 60-40 is dead because we're at the end of the line on interest rates. We're not going to negative interest rates. I think that political consensus is pretty clear. So it makes a lot more sense to replace the bond aspect of your portfolio with property, right? If I was giving advice to anybody, if, if, you, if you're wanting to be risk averse, take a portion and buy super high quality, big tech dominant, dominant networks, you know, you buy big tech monopolies and then take another portion and buy the highest quality physical 20th century property you can buy. Buy city blocks in Manhattan, buy buildings, buy scarce art, buy sports teams, buy the Patriots, right? Buy something, but you know, Disney is partly property, right? They own Marvel, they own Mickey Mouse, they own Star Wars, they own intellectual property. That's why we love them. We don't love commodity cash cows that have to compete in a competitive market for cash generation, right, to sell generics. We don't love that because that looks like a bond. So I would buy property. I would buy big tech monopoly because you can assume they can raise their prices and they can... Apple can ship a new product to a billion people overnight for a nick, for a nickel, okay? They have a chance, mm -hmm. right? And then I would buy digital property. That's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the dominant digital property. There may be other digital properties that will form. You know, I, I'm not comfortable with them enough to recommend them. But I think that Bitcoin meets a, a need for everybody in the world. If you want to have a non-sovereign, non-cash derivative store of value beyond the control of any government or any company that is not a security, that is on an open permissionless network that you can trade 24-7, 365, that, that checks a lot of boxes for a lot of investors. If you think that 5% of the world wants it, then having 5% of it in your portfolio is rational. 1%, 10%, some amount. I think everybody's got to make that decision based upon their risk tolerance and their portfolio, you know, charter. You're definitely trying to democratize education in the last minute and a half. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Sailor Academy. Can you sort of speak to that? You know, um, it impoverished my family. My family's life savings for 200 years were wiped out in the first four weeks that I attended MIT. Like, you know, it's expensive to get an education and I'm sitting in the back of a lecture hall and the professor's about there and I'm paying more money than my family could make or save in five years to, to spend you know, a few minutes. And I said, this isn't right that it's insanely expensive. And then I got to the point where I realized I could just put a video camera on that professor and if I upload the courses and if I actually put the textbook in the public domain, I can give away the same computer science degree or physics degree to a million people for a nickel. I can give it away to a billion people for a nickel. So we created um, an organization, Sailor uh, Academy, um, that's eventually going to become Sailor University, and we give away free college degrees to anybody that, that wants it. All they got to do is have an iPad or a computer. We just got approved by the state of Florida to give a free MBA. So if you get through the courses, you can get an MBA degree 
It'll be accredited by Florida. It'll cost you nothing other than the electricity and a used iPad. I, I, I don't think you can teach ballet that way, Guy. I don't think you can teach golf that way. I do think you can teach mathematics on a computer for free. The world's got maybe 10 million PhDs. We need a billion PhDs. You can't spend millions of dollars to get an education. We need to give away an education for a nickel to billions of people to move the human race forward. It is possible. I'm on a mission to do it. Uh, and I like the way things are headed. We've, we've passed the million student threshold now. We're adding, we're adding more students every week, you know, than MIT added every year. And we're giving them the education for free. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. Well, I'm sure it's going to go in great places. Maybe if I apply, you'll write me a letter of recommendation. But I want to be respectful of your time, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Michael Saylor. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.